everyone, and welcome back to the Recover with Carly podcast. I am so excited for today's episode. First reason why I'm so excited is because this is my first interview episode as the Recover with Carly podcast. So as you all know, we recently did a rebrand and I'm so excited uh, for today's episode because I'm sitting down with Serena, who is someone that I have looked up to for a very long time. Um, I've had amazing conversation with her and she is incredibly knowledgeable. And I thought she was the perfect person to have on as our first interview for this rebrand and the direction that the podcast is going into. So welcome, Serena. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Of course. I'm loving the bright blonde hair. You look up your glasses, everything you are stunning. (laughs) Um, so before we get into this really important conversation, um, would, do you mind just sharing with the listeners a little bit about yourself? Of course. Um, my name is Serena Nongia. I use she, her pronouns. I like to enter conversations, naming some of the privileges and marginalizations that I hold. So um, I live in a fat body. I'm biracial, but I'm white presenting. I am queer. I have, I grew up in a very privileged household uh, financially, but now I'm middle class, um, like a lot of other people. Um, And I have been in the eating disorder and body image and fat activist space for almost 10 years uh, since high school. I uh, got into this space originally because of my own body image struggles, but then decided to deepen my work when I found out my younger sister had an eating disorder. um, And I found that out in high school. I have started clubs in college. I've gone to conferences. I'm now a speaker on fat activism, specifically how to be an ally to fat people um, in the eating disorder space and just in general talking about weight stigma. and I, first and foremost, really identify as an activist. So I, um, you know, with this conversation, it wasn't really something I necessarily wanted to get involved with. I just had to. Um, and uh, it's, to be quite honest, I'm like very exhausted. I've experienced a lot of trauma the past month or so based on weight stigma, in addition to all the other ish I've been through the past few months with other stuff. So, um, you know, I think it's just whenever we have these conversations going into it with like a knowing that life can be really hard, but it's important to talk about these things and hopefully I can make it less hard for other people. (laughs) Yeah. And that is so empowering to know that you are able to acknowledge that. Um, and my goal with the podcast and just in my relations with people is to provide a safe space for people to say like, these are really difficult conversations. I'm tired of having these conversations, um, and allow people to come to me to rest. Right. And I just want to, to tell you that I, I am always here for you. And if you ever need anything, you know, where to find me. Um, because you deserve that rest and you deserve, you know, to prioritize yourself, um, alongside doing the really amazing and important work that you do every single day. Thanks, Carly. 
You're welcome. So you said you've been in this space for about 10 years. Um, that's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lot of work. Um, before we get into like the major, like, like what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm curious, what changes have you seen in this space within the 10 years, if any? That's a good question. Um, it's hard to say I started this work when I was 15. So I think a lot of the changes I've seen have actually just been how I perceive what is happening. Um, I think in general, in society, there is definitely more um, coverage or like of fat people, of plus size people specifically, like smaller plus size people. Um, And while there's more um, people talking about it, maybe there are a bunch of, you know, there are a bunch of plus size TikTokers or influencers who have a ton of followers. um, There's still not been a lot of movement as far as I can see with true acceptance mm-hmm. um, of fat people or plus size people. Um, in the eating disorder space specifically, there has been a big switch towards equity in some spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, a record, you know, with the murder of George Floyd in 2020, there was a huge societal shift in my opinion in some spaces where we started to talk more about racism and other isms that are affecting people. Mm-hmm. And it really was a catalyst to encourage organizations to actually give a fuck. I don't know yeah. if we're cursing on this. Please do. Please do. <laughs> um, and, and so I think, and I also think that with the, with the expansion of social media, people who haven't had a voice before are at least sharing their voice, whether mm-hmm. they're being heard as much as they should be heard or that their voices are being catalysts for actual change in the field is mm-hmm. hard to say. Um, but I think people are just talking about it more, more voices are out there, more opinions and perspectives. And I think in some ways, a lot of the eating disorder field is overwhelmed by how many different voices there are. Um, but when it comes to certain topics, no matter where you lie on certain things, um, whether it be body neutrality, body positivity, or um, a lot of different things, there are some things that most of the eating disorder field feels pretty strongly about. And, um, and I think when that comes to things like just treating people with respect and not encouraging eating disorders, um, it's a low bar for what has changed, but I hope I, I see a, a collaboration of people seeing eating disorders as strongly harmful and like wanting to protect people from them and help people with them. So from a baseline, there's been some agreement, but mm-hmm. there is a lot of dissonance within this, within society as a whole, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one thing that comes up for me a lot, when I think about this as well as like you mentioned social media and we, we have, 
we see these creators who do live in fat bodies or who do live in plus size bodies. Um, and I'm curious, like if you agree with me on this, but one thing that I see a lot is those creators with the largest platforms are quote unquote, conventionally attractive, uh, people. And from what I've seen in conversations that I've had, it is easier for society to accept someone who lives in a plus size body if they are quote unquote conventionally attractive. So I feel like I always get stuck in celebrating that because I'm like, but we're still, we're still perpetuating like a specific look, right? Like the plus size creators that you see a lot have like a smaller waist and maybe, you know, big, bigger hips and a bigger butt, or, you know, like they have what society has kind of accepted they in, in that way. And so I always am like, but we, there's still so much work to be done because there are so many, like even fat black creators who aren't getting even like doubled the amount of mm-hmm. space on platforms that, you know, maybe white plus size creators are getting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's really quite disturbing because black plus size fat creators and activists have been around for longer mm-hmm. and have, and like founded the field and have been an inspiration for a lot of uh, white fat creators, um, whether they know it or not, a lot of the influences we have in society from fat people is from black fat um, people. So yeah, it's, it's concerning. It's like, there's, I think the fashion industry, you would know, probably know more about it than me, but just like Ashley Graham was one of the first plus size mm-hmm. models that I identified with. And like, I found so much beauty in myself because I saw beauty in her mm-hmm. and she is really cool. And there are so few plus size models. I think New York fashion week is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Like I have, I have a friend, like I have two friends who I met who they're both male plus size models. They were the first male plus size models to walk on New York fashion week in 2020 too and this year they didn't get hired so what's going on are performative it's performative yeah yeah that's pretty standard I think like Mm -hmm. it's it's more diverse because people because organizations and companies want to seem diverse but they but I don't truly believe a lot of places have changed their internal values. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I think we saw, like you had mentioned, even in 2020, right? When when George Floyd was murdered and we saw this rise in like diversity, air quotes diversity, because brands were feeling like this guilt almost. They're like, okay, everyone else is doing it. So we should do it while it's being talked about. And then you look at, you like, go back and you look at those brands now and you're like, where is all of this that you were talking about in 2020? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's always such a big red flag (laughs) 
and knowing that that was, that was performative and it didn't, it, it unfortunately wasn't, um, like sincere. Yeah. And I think when it comes to figuring out or noticing where someone or an organization is performative, it's in their consistency and in their lasting beliefs and impact. So Mm -hmm. like we see it every year in June with pride, Mm -hmm. all these organizations and companies start using the rainbow flag. And then as soon as June is over, it's gone. Mm -hmm. I think with June, 2020, there was this huge focus towards equity and diversity and for people of color, specifically black people and like acknowledging we are here with you. Like we see you and like, there's no way that any of us who are not in black bodies will ever know what black people go through. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like an extended June. It was like a two year long June where we saw an uptick and now it's 2023 and it black men specifically are still being killed Mm -hmm. black trans people are still being killed but there's no uproar because Mm -hmm. there aren't any protests and and it's the end of june Mm -hmm. and um and when it comes to the eating disorder field there is absolutely a very similar like process of some organizations will be performative and like pretend like they care about certain people and then and then it's the end of June and Mm -hmm. they're back to their violent ways using resources that they have to perpetuate discrimination and stigma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing that, um, I think is really important just to share with the community. And this is something that I've heard you speak about before, um, but equity versus equality. And I think this is important in the eating disorder field in regards to what we're talking about today. Um, but do you mind just sharing with listeners, like how you describe that difference? Because last time I heard you describe it was at a meetup in Los Angeles. And I was just like, holy shit. She just described that perfectly. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I will say the way that I describe equity versus equality is certainly not original, but um, mm-hmm. I kind of see a starting line of a race. And ideally, everybody's starting at the same starting line. Um, Mm -hmm. That is not really true because a lot of people are experiencing barriers to even getting to the starting line. So we put someone who's experiencing discrimination behind the starting line, like three or four feet. And then we put someone who's experiencing multiple marginalizations even farther behind the starting line. So we have what is essentially like, Someone who's at the starting line, who has not enough discrimination or has enough privilege to just be at the starting line. And then Mm -hmm. there are people who it will take a few seconds or even minutes to get to start, to get to the place where the starting line is. So Mm -hmm. if someone, this is essentially the idea that if we're all equal, or equality is the focus, um, we are actually not all starting at the starting line. We are all starting where we are. Mm -hmm. But when equity comes into play, um, we move those people who are behind the starting line to in front of the starting line. 
and the, the barriers that they're going to be facing, less access to healthcare, le- you know, lower um, salaries mm-hmm. and different things will essentially allow the, them to start at a, at a point which is further ahead because the people behind them who are now at the regular starting line, who are people with privilege will actually be able to move faster and they will not face all these barriers. Mm-hmm. So um, equity is the idea that we can't start everybody at the same starting line because we're not all facing the same barriers. So we need to uplift the people who are facing more barriers so that they are more likely to end up at the same place or a similar place um, as others uh, because they had some you know, support that Mm -hmm. others might not have needed. Yeah. And I love that. I think that's so important. It's like understanding that you can't just expect to provide the same thing for everyone and expect the outcome to be the same. So it's instead of saying like, oh, we're, we're providing the same thing equally to everyone. It's like, great, but also you have to take into consideration the barriers that are in place for certain individuals that keep them behind privileged people who maybe don't have to experience the same barriers. Um, Whereas with equity, it's recognizing these barriers, recognizing these systems and figuring out how can we provide these individuals with the resources and the support that they need to move forward and to reach that finish line at the same time or before someone, you know, who is in a more privileged position. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. I, I just loved when you explained that. And I think that thinking about it in that way is always really helpful because I think people get confused. I mean, I, when I think of equity versus equality, that picture, I don't know if you know of that, like really famous photo and it's like, three people that are like looking over a fence. One's like a kid and like an adult and they're like the boxes that they're standing on are all different sizes to allow them all to be able to look over the fence. Um, and I always think of that, that, that illustration when we talk about equality versus equity. Um, so let's get into today's conversation. (laughs) Um, For those of you listening, if you follow Serena, you've probably seen her talk about this um, over the last couple of days. Um, But essentially, on February 10th, NIDA published its initial response, the guidelines recently released by the Clinical Practice Guideline um, Subcommittee on Obesity of the American Academy of Pediatrics, or the AAP. And essentially we are not happy with their statement. Yes. Okay. So before, before we get into why we are not happy with their statement, do you mind just giving a, just a brief overview of what this statement uh, looked like? Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to pull up my own post for reference because yes. activists uh, can't remember everything that they say. Um, (laughs) and I spent a lot of time going through their, their statement. Um, so, you know, they, the eating, the rest of the eating disorder field was like the, okay. So basically the AAP is 
part of their recommendation for treatment guidelines for childhood obesity um, or for children in fat bodies is um, to recommend bariatric or an option for bariatric surgery as young as age 13. What that means is surgery to permanently alter um, a child's stomach to make it them feel more full when they haven't eaten as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also pharmaceuticals, uh, recommending pharmaceuticals for weight loss. Um, you know, they didn't even put an age for that one. So when I think about what an eating disorder organization should do when they recognize that people who have bariatric surgery and who are prescribed, uh, whether through behaviors like restricting or through pharmaceuticals to prescribed weight loss, um, the number of people who are prescribed weight loss as a kid are more, you know, those people are more likely to have eating disorders Mm -hmm. or some form of disordered eating as they get older or even as young kids. Mm -hmm. Um, There are also, you know, people who have bariatric surgery are four times, five times more likely to experience suicidal ideation, potentially Mm -hmm. commit suicide or um, to complete suicide. So um, when I think about what is harmful and what an eating disorder organization, specifically somewhat, uh, you know, the National Eating Disorders Association, which claims to be the leading eating disorder association, should do, I say, these are clear, the AAP has released clear guidelines that will encourage and perpetuate eating disorders and disordered eating in young children. Mm-hmm. So Nita did not oppose the guidelines. They said that this language, that the, that the guidelines might impact some kids mm-hmm. and that the harm may be potential. We know based on facts and statistics that this will impact at least 20% of kids who are on, who in the US are considered obese based on the BMI scale, which by the way, um, the BMI scale or the BMI, you know, measurement is different for kids. I've been doing research on this. it's called BMI for age and it's really harmful. P- kids as young as two are, um, are getting their BMIs like given to their parents anyway. So we know that there's a ton of fat kids in the US um, and we know that how harmful these, you know, bariatric surgery and pharmaceuticals and intentional weight loss can be. Um, the, National Eating Disorders Association essentially said BMI should not be the only determinant of a child's health. And right, that's correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I hate to tell Nita this, but like we've been talking about that for a long time. That is not new news. (laughs) It's not new news. And in fact, a lot of doctors and medical practitioners agree that BMI is not a good indicator of health as the only, as the sole determinant. Um, 
But, you know, Nita also didn't go on to release, you know, they, in their first statement, they were like, we're going to have conversations with AAP. We're going to, um, we don't, like, this could, you know, bariatric, their guidelines, aka their bariatric surgery and pharmaceuticals could be appropriate in certain circumstances. In my opinion, and most people in the eating disorders uh, field's opinion, there's absolutely no time in which bariatric surgery is appropriate for children. Never. Never. Mm-mm. Nita says they are, that in, in 2019, they released a completely different statement based on AAP guidelines, which had been released, that, which were a lot less harmful, which they had, you know, the AAP guidelines in 2023. And they were really concerned mm-hmm. back in 2019. So what has changed? Um, and the truth is that their values haven't really changed, um, but their performative, you know, temp, you know, um, temporary values have mm-hmm. changed. So um, what we needed from the National Eating Disorders Association was for them to say unequivocally, we denounce the guidelines that the AAP released on this, the treatment for obesity in young kids. And here is why. Data, 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 data. Mm-hmm. We saw other uh, national associations that support eating disorder healing release a statement jointly. And um, Nita didn't want to get involved. Um, Nita, in fact, took two weeks to respond, and uh, which was a week longer than everybody else. And um, their response was shit. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, in a nutshell, what they said and what I wanted them to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, the story did not end there, but that's, that's the start of that story. Okay. Okay. Have you heard anything? Like, has anyone, has anyone like reached out to you from Nita, like asking? Nope. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, um, you know, Nita knew, knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. I have people in my network who used to work at Nita who have reached out and been like, bravo, or like, you know, supporting me um, in my statements that Nita has been, you know, has made this huge failure of uh, not only like human decency, but also a failure of their mission, mm-hmm. which is really important to nonprofits, our missions are our North Star. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't follow our mission, everything that we say we are doing is actually invalid, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you are not following your mission, which for Nita is part of their mission is to prevent eating disorders, then, um, then they shouldn't be getting the support that they have in the past um, for people who trusted them, including myself, to continue to prevent eating disorders and to support people who do have them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, I know leaders at Nita have seen my posts. I can track some of these things. Like yeah. this is a technological world and I know what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Nita has seen everything that fat activists have been doing. There have been tons of fat activists who have sent direct emails to the NIDA CEO, to NIDA higher ups. There have been, a, you know, a few of my friends who are on this performative, unfortunately it was performative, lived experience collaborative, um, which NIDA pretended was that they were listening to these people who had lived experiences, including queer, trans, and um, fat people of color who had had eating disorders. Um, A lot of my friends have left that lived experience collective and posted on social media why and sent emails to, you know, to Nita's higher up. So to me, it's pretty inexcusable. And um, last week, Nita doubled down and released another statement as if nothing had happened. Um, Typical. Yeah, they they basically, it was a pre-written statement. I have no doubt they, they drafted the first statement with the second statement. They were like, we're going to release the second statement a week after the first statement because that's how you do PR. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, and instead of listening to the community, which the title of their second statement was community response, instead of actually listening to their community, they just completely bypassed us, ignored us, and they've lost complete trust from me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am, in addition to like the pain that I've been experiencing with this terrible, these terrible guidelines, I have friends who are dietitians and therapists who are already losing clients because they refuse to follow these guidelines mm-hmm. and their parents are like, we want our child to lose weight. And the pediatric association of pediatrics Academy says they should. Mm-hmm. And Nita doesn't say they shouldn't. So we're, ju- we're going to go to someone who will help them lose weight. Um, and that's the scariest part is that when you think of, if you aren't in the eating disorder field, if you are just someone out in the world and you start to question whether or not you have an eating disorder or someone that you know has an eating disorder, the first place that people are going to go is Nita, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so now it makes this even more <laughs> detrimental because this is an organization with a huge platform that is known as the eating disorder association. You and I know that there are other organizations out there that are well, we will always recommend over Nita. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the scary thing for me is that as a therapist, parents coming to me saying, hey, well, Nita said that it's okay that AAP is doing this, this, and this. Yeah. And it's hard to explain why me, a random therapist, doesn't agree with the National Eating Disorder Association as an eating disorder therapist, like mm-hmm. that puts a lot of us in a very uncomfortable situation. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, because Nita automatically without 
without justification has so much people trust Nita so much Mm -hmm. because they have this name and they have money they have double the amount of money double if not quadruple the amount of money that any other eating disorder organization has in the U.S. Um, It's just they don't deserve the trust Mm -mm. or the reputation that they have they I used to be I used to raise money for Nita I used Mm -hmm. to support Nita when I was in college I was like all gung-ho I was like oh I finally have a community that cares and little did I know that as someone in a larger body experiencing disordered eating Nita actually doesn't give a fuck about me and that is hurtful personally but as someone who's an advocate for others and specifically an advocate for fat people I know how many fat people have felt in their life that they had it had struggles with eating disorders or disordered eating and they did not feel like their struggles were valid because they were fat and they weren't underweight and they like you could speak more to that as the you know the experience of someone who had an eating disorder mm-hmm. yeah um, no I mean I think we see that that's one of the biggest issues within the eating disorder field as a whole treatment centers like even clinicians unfortunately are still using BMI the DSM-5 is still using BMI to determine the severity of an eating disorder. And so when you have these major like organizations and like credentialed like people and guidelines saying that this is the correct way to determine whether or not someone's eating disorder is severe or not, people are going to listen to that. And that's, what's creating the continued harm of, oh, it's not that bad. Or, oh, are you sure it's an eating disorder? Because you're, you know, according to your BMI, you are overweight. Um, I had a traumatizing experience at the doctor's office a couple of like two years ago where I first time going to the doctor and telling them, I don't want to know my weight. I've experienced an eating disorder. Please do not tell me what my weight is. I told the secretary when I walked into the doctor's office, I told the nurse, the first nurse that I interacted with. And then I told the doctor who came in. Um, and this was a gynecology appointment where I felt like I should have felt safe. Um, and I told three separate people, please do not tell me my weight. I've experienced an eating disorder. I'm recovered. I'm in a good place. And I just do not want to know what my weight is. And they all were like, okay, okay. Yeah, sure. Talk to the doctor about it. She was like, oh, so proud of you. You've recovered. Well, according to your BMI. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like you want to bring this up right now. And then as I'm leaving, they were like, here's your Here's all of your forms, your follow-up aftercare forms. And right on the front mm-hmm. in big, huge letters, numbers is my weight. And I saw it. I was sitting in the doctor's office. She handed it to me. I saw it. And I like felt like my heart had stopped. Like everything within my body just like stopped. And it wasn't because I saw the number per se. It was because I had asked over and over again to not see that number. And then I had absolutely no control and they didn't take that in. They didn't take it seriously enough. 
to scribble it out, to put Sharpie over it, to do something to remove it. And instead they were so careless and saying, here's your forms, even though you told us three times that you had an eating disorder and you don't want to know your weight, but we're going to include your weight on the front of this form. And I got to my car and I just like broke down because I felt so violated. I felt like, so like they, they just didn't care at all. And that is a feeling that no one deserves to feel when they walk into a doctor's office, but it's unfortunately the reality for so many people. It is the reality. And I've had many experiences like that. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them, they give you the paperwork and it's on the front of the paperwork. I I have tried my best to cover it with my Mm -hmm. hand the whole way home. One, one time I accidentally brought it in to my childhood home and my parents saw it and they commented on it. Now I like, I'm pretty sure I threw it straight away this last time, but I still saw it. I still saw it. Um, And what I, what I really want to say is that like fat people or people in larger bodies, anyone struggling with an eating disorder experiences these things on a daily basis um like yesterday I I'm like fighting I'm fighting the man right now like I'm doing my fighting so many people right now you are and I get a message in the middle of my work day from someone on tinder who matched with me and their first message to me was commenting on my weight with a throw up emoji oh like sorry I'm doing my best, right? I ex- we all ex- you know, fat people experience these interpersonal traumas and discrimination, the institutional trauma and discrimination at hospitals and primary care places. And Nita is creating systemic discrimination. Mm-hmm. This will not go away. It is staying, it is sticking. They are unapologetically creating this systemic discrimination, which could last a lifetime, mm-hmm. if not longer. Mm-hmm. And that is what breaks my heart because as an activist, I'm working so hard every day to heal myself in therapy, to find healing for others, to support others. And there is nothing I can do mm-hmm. to stop the systemic discrimination and I thought you know racism is here to stay like I know fat phobia is here to stay but like this field the eating disorder field can make a difference and there will be change and I still believe it to some degree but Nita has destroyed that possibility for the next 10 years I they don't understand I don't think they understand because they are unapologetic. They don't give a shit about what they've just done. They feel like they're doing the right thing. And I just want anyone listening, especially anyone who works at NIDA, to know you are causing systemic harm, which could last a lifetime. And I please hope that you say something internally, that you leave that organization. This organization does not need to exist anymore. They've done enough harm. And that's all. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to validate every single thing that you're feeling and know that 
that feeling of frustration of like, I'm showing up every single day to have these conversations, to talk about these things going for me. I'm like, I'm going in, I'm getting my degree to go into a field that I'm hoping to make some sort of difference in to help people understand that BMI is bullshit, that there is all of this inequality and all of this systemic, all of these systemic issues that are happening within these fields so that people can stop blaming themselves. And then we have shit like this happen where, where everything that I say, everything that you say, any, everything that activists show up every single day to talk about who have lived experiences, who have been traumatized by these things are showing up every day saying, please stop doing this. Like these things need to change. And then an organization like Nita shows up and says, "Hmm, you know, it is what it is. We're not gonna, we're not gonna deny, we're not going to say that it's bad. We're also not really going to take a stance. We're going to say that there are some kids and there is potential harm. And, and that isn't taking, that is not taking a stance. That is exactly like you said, perpetuating the very dangerous, like fat phobia, racism, all of it. And it, Nothing will change unless these big organizations actually take a stance and say, we do not support the AAP. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that wasn't done. Yeah. And I think a lot of people might be like, why are you blaming NIDA when it was the American Academy of Pediatrics that released these guidelines? And all I have to say is NIDA has you know, I honestly expect this from Mm -hmm. a medical organization. However, NIDA has a ton of power and I feel that they could have prevented something like this from happening. 100%. I think they have connections to, you know, they could, they could potentially have connections to the AAP and I think they could have to, you know, helped and they chose to not help. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Or at least provide any sort of pushback and saying to the AAP, like, this is the research that we have. And either you, as a medical industry, and we know that medical field is still using outdated forms of measurement that have like data is showing is not accurate, but I think like this was an opportunity for Nita to say, like, these are the statistics. This is the data. This is the science that we have regarding the treatment of children who exist in fat bodies. And they chose not to do that. And in 2019, they chose to do it. So what's the problem? What changed? Yeah. I know what changed. What changed? Like, what what happened between 2019 to now that this stance is is different now it's definitely worth exploring is it is it the inside like the people who are running the organization is it the board is it like who who is it that has caused this pushback so frustrating And just all of this to say, like, this is my personal opinion. These are my views. I, you know, I can't stand by while this happens. And I just, 
we, uh, you know, I don't know everything that's happening internally, um, but I've given Nita a grain of salt for the past 10 years and I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, one, one comment that stood out to me on your post, um, from three days ago is the like attention Nita. I'm tired. I'm begging you, please stop. Um, someone had mentioned, I'm gen- I genuinely mean this, read their statement and read the AAP. I'm still confused why people are mad at Nita. Well, with their latest announcement, are you able to please explain? I feel like I'm missing something here. Um, and I think you did respond. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember reading it being like, oh, that's perfect. So let me just pull that up really fast because I think that's what some people may be thinking who are listening is like, where, where is this anger coming from? Why are you so like, why are we so frustrated? Um, and you said, I've done a lot of labor around this and don't have any energy to explain directly. However, I would send you to fed up collectives post on the Nita situation and encourage you to look at the statements from the perspective of fat people who have eating disorders. Um, and I think that's what people are missing. Mm-hmm. Looking at it from the perspective of fat people who have eating disorders. And I think that's harmful for people to dismiss, right? Yeah. They're like, I read this. I live, I exist in a small, like a small body, a thin body. I read this and I don't see a problem. It's like, well, think about it from <laughs> like the perspective of the people who are truly being harmed by this. Yeah. And I think we see that a lot in society. Well, it's, I don't, I don't relate to it. So how is it harmful? Mm-hmm. Or I'm not witnessing this in my personal life. So why, what's the problem? Yeah. And that's so harmful. It is. And, and it's truly, if you need to experience something personally, you know, a lot of people around the issues of consent or you know sexual violence they're like think about your daughters think about your mothers Mm -hmm. I'm like why do you need to think I mean yes if that's what you need to do to empathize fine but like Mm -hmm. isn't it enough that fat kids are now going to be experiencing harm do you think that you know, do you think fat people shouldn't exist? Mm -hmm. Like fat people will always exist. I don't know what, like a lot of, you know, a lot of the feelings around stuff is like, we should, fat people should get thin or die is like Mm -hmm. what I've, I get death threats. I get people telling me to go to the gym as if they know that like I do or don't go to the gym. Like on my on like regular posts, not even activism posts. And so it's just a lot of violence. And I think if you can't recognize and empathize with people who are experiencing violence, that's kind of fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that comes up for me too, is kind of similar to what you were saying is like, if you have, um, a child and you said this was 12, 12 years old, 13, 13 years old, you have a 13 year old kid who doesn't want to have bariatric surgery or who, you know, is trying to heal their relationship with their body, but their parents aren't on the same page as them. Where did like, where does that consent come in? 
I'm curious if that's, if that's something that's included in the AAP and I can look that up on my own, but do these children need, like, can they say that they don't want this surgery or is this something that's like overridden by their parents because they're younger than 18? I think the guidelines say something along the lines of this is a decision that should be made with all parties involved, but that doesn't give any agency to a child. No. I mean, if anything, there's going to be shame and guilt created by the doctors and the parents of like, this is why we need to do this surgery and almost guilting these children into feeling like, okay, yeah, I should get this surgery because I'm fat and I can't be fat. And fat makes me uh, not worthy of a decision to make regarding my own body. Right. And 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 just think about like the message that that is sending to those children and other children even. Mm -hmm. Oh God, it is so frustrating. It's just, I, it's going to be bad. Like, I don't know. I hope that parents don't listen to these guidelines, but they will because doctors are supposed to be trustworthy. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, like not everybody knows medical stuff. So yeah. of course you just listen to the expert, but mm-hmm. it's pretty scary. I think I probably would have, if these guidelines were existed when I was 13, my pediatrician would have said, you need to get bariatric surgery. You need to be Mm -hmm. put on Ozempic or Wagovi because like I was prescribed Weight Watchers when I was 10. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think unfortunately people don't, and this is the case with eating disorders too, people don't think about the actual long-term effects that these things have on our bodies. It's more so, okay, you're going to lose weight and you're going to be thin. Awesome. Like that's the best thing you could do for yourself. And it's like, no, there are extremely detrimental long-term and short-term effects that these things are going to have on individuals. But because we live in a society that is so focused on the size of your body and believing that your health is solely determined by the size of your body, they will continue to do whatever they need to do to make sure people exist in small bodies. Yep. It's pretty exhausting. I'm tired. Are you tired? (laughs) I'm tired. Yes, I am tired. I did want to read though, because I think this will be helpful for listeners really quickly and I'll link it in the show notes, but the fed up collective did a really great job of explaining this. And I think it's just a good way to wrap up our conversation to kind of do a summary of everything that we just talked about. Um, so like I said, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes and you can head to, um, the fed up collectives Instagram and, and read this on your own as well, but they pretty much just made a slide um, explaining the, the false claim. So why is it harmful? Um, and I'll just share some of these. So why is it harmful? So the AAP guidelines are based on the claim that existing in a fat body is itself an illness. This is false. And research shows there is no evidence that being fat actually causes specific medical problems, medical problems, the AAP attributes 
Two, being fat also affects thin people and weight stigma and cycling cause many of these medical problems. That is so important to remember. I think that is like Mm -hmm. really, really important and just goes to show how the claims that they're making are false. (laughs) Yep. Um, they also talked about enforcing prejudice. So the AAP's claim that being fat is itself an illness is inherently stigmatizing. Anti-fatness is a pervasive and violent form of oppression, which is rooted in anti-blackness and intersects with many other forms of systemic oppression. Enforcement of anti-fat bias by medical providers and associations like the AAP cause dangerous and deadly medical neglect, care avoidance, misdiagnosis, and mistreatment of fat people. It is systemic. It is systemic, everyone. This is not just one problem that exists within one sphere. This is a systemic issue and we have to treat it as such or else nothing is going to change. I don't know how many times we have to fucking say that. (laughs) We've been saying it. (laughs) We have been saying this for so long. Um, Dangerous recommendations. So decades of research have shown there are no safe and effective ways to produce long-term weight loss for the vast majority of people, including children. None of the AAP's recommended interventions have been shown to result in substantial long-term weight loss for the majority of kids and teens. These interventions have significant physical and mental health risks, which are especially concerning for youth who are still physically and mentally developing. Which blows my mind that we're recommending bariatric surgery for a child who is still developing. They're not even grown. (laughs) They're not even fully grown. It is so messed up. They might not have even gone through puberty yet. (laughs) Yes, exactly. They may have not even gone through puberty yet. So how can you be okay with performing a procedure that is literally like body altering, life altering on someone who is only 13 years old. I mean, just in general performing that procedure, but on someone so young is sickening. Um, and then they talk about how it's harmful, how it's harming, um, queer youth, which I think is really important. We didn't talk like too much about this, but, um, I think it's really important. I'll just read it really quickly. So the LGBTQIA plus youth experience high rates of stigma and eating disorders. The AP guidelines subject children to additional fat phobia, stigma, and focus on food restriction, which increases eating disorder risk. Um, The AAP recommending weight loss surgery for teens at the same time that many states are banning gender affirming care for trans youth is extremely harmful. I'm like snapping my fingers because Mm -hmm. this is so important. Um, Gender affirming care saves lives by allowing youth to be their authentic selves, prescribing weight loss surgery to teens to make their bodies better conform to Eurocentric appearance ideals is uh, coercive and risks their physical and mental health. Getting me all riled up. Uh, Um, (laughs) And then I just wanted to see, just quickly uh, read how Nita responded. I know we talked about it. They pretty much just mentioned um, and encouraged parents and providers to have informed decisions with children and screen them for eating disorders prior to bullshit. 
while administering weight-related treatments. That's not going to happen. Um, Nita ignores the fact that the lifestyle treatments, drugs, surgeries, and monitoring recommended by the AAP for higher weight children directly constitute or encourage eating disorder behaviors and are incompatible with eating disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery. Oh, that was in, okay, that was on the 4th, uh, February 4th, um, Mm -hmm. when they released that statement. Um, And then lastly, why is this harmful? So we talked about this throughout today's episode, but I'll just share what they said because I think it will probably wrap it up pretty well. So NIDA is a large and widely recognized nonprofit with broad reach and influence, which we touched on. Their statement that weight-related treatment is ethical for children and compatible with eating disorder prevention is alarming, inaccurate, and deeply fatphobic. Given that this statement was released right after Nita's announcement of their annual Eating Disorder Awareness Week, it shows a significant lack of awareness that being fat is not itself an illness, and there is no bias-free way to treat it as such, and that doing so actively encourages disordered eating and eating disorders. Great timing on their end, (laughs) timing that up with eating disorder week it is it's quite it's quite interesting as they 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 went along with the theme of it's time for change I think that's uh Mm -hmm. I think it's time for change it's Uh, time for change and you obviously aren't Nita obviously is not making change in fact they are taking steps backward compared to what their statement from 2019 was So I'll read this last one, and this is what needs to change. And this is for everyone listening. If you are feeling inclined to be a part of this conversation, if you are wondering what you can do to be a part of this conversation, this I think will be helpful um, in figuring out where to start with that. So what needs to change? According to Fed Up Collective, anti-fat bias has Pervasive societal impacts in the AAP guidelines and need of response are just two examples of a larger problem, which will require systemic change to eradicate. We do not believe that the AAP guidelines can be effectively revised because we object to the foundational premise that being fat is itself an illness, which requires treatment. Children deserve medical care, supporting their holistic mental and physical well-being, and coercive weight loss interventions have no place in that. We encourage Nita to rescind their statement, acknowledge that being fat is not an illness, and comprehensively address how they have aligned with anti-fat bias. I agree. Nita, Nita, Nita. Oh, 100%. I agree. Um... So to kind of wrap things up, I, you know, this has been a very exhausting conversation. I feel like it's exhausting because it just sometimes feels like we're going in a circle Mm -hmm. and it's just like, oh, again, oh, again, oh, again, here we are again, over and over and over again. Um, But for anyone listening, if you have children, if you are one of those people who heard the new AAP guidelines and was like, oh, great. Like now I can get my child bariatric surgery. I highly recommend (laughs) reconsidering. (laughs) I recommend educating yourself, like actually going to organizations, not NIDA, but 
the Alliance for Eating Disorders, Project Heal. These are just two examples of really great organizations that are talking about how harmful this is. Um, so rethink your decision. Um, surround yourself with education from organizations that are actually looking at the statistics, who are actually looking at the systems that are in place that are continuing to perpetuate these, these problems. And speak up, even if it feels uncomfortable, because change is not going to happen if we just continue to remain in our comfort zone and be submissive and continue to just subject ourselves to what society is telling us we need to do to be accepted. Um, change will not happen. And unfortunately, we have to have those difficult conversations and point out the really fucked up stuff that is continuing to happen, even if a national organization is choosing not to do that. And I just want to validate if you feel let down about this, if you feel angry about this, if you feel sad, if you feel re-traumatized by this, you aren't alone. You are deserving of being heard and you're deserving of talking about that. Um, and so I'm here for you if you need to talk um, because you're not alone in that at all. And there are people out there and organizations out there that want to, to support you and listen to you and help you and provide like actual like equity <laughs> and actually help you get to a place where you aren't feeling like you're just trying to catch up with everyone else constantly. I'll Thank just you, repeat Serena. what you say. I'm just too tired. Like, you know, I know. And I don't, and, and I don't expect anything else from you. You did such an amazing job explaining today what it's been going on. Um, thank you for taking time out of your day to be here. I really, really appreciate you and your energy in doing this is so appreciated. I hope that you take some time to go rest and do some self-care and set boundaries for yourself and with others to allow yourself to just fill that cup back up. Thank you so much, Carly. It's so awesome to, to chat with you and really appreciate of you. Of course. Before we wrap up, do you mind just sharing where our followers can find you? Of course. Um, so my Instagram and Facebook is at the body activists. Um, and my website is www.thebodyactivists.com. Um, and you can read my statements there as well as see all the other work I'm doing. I do workshops on how to be an ally to fat people and general weight stigma awareness um, and teaching. So um, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or at my email on, or my website, um, and I'd be happy to engage with you in a few weeks. <laughs> yes. Yes. In a few weeks. You heard that right. In a few weeks, she needs time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Serena, thank you so much for being here again. I adore you. I appreciate you. Your effort does not go unnoticed at all. You are 
seriously someone who inspires me every single day. And I'm so thankful to have you in my world, in my sphere. And I'm thankful to, you know, be able to reach out and have really important conversations with you. Thank you, Carly. You're welcome. And the listeners feel free to leave a rating or review. um, And we will see you in the next episode.